Hi, this is Natalie Hoffman of FlyingFreeNow.com, and you're listening to the Flying Free Podcast, a support resource for women of faith looking for hope and healing from hidden emotional and spiritual abuse. Welcome to episode 192 of the Flying Free Podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Tiffany. I should have asked you before we start. Is it Yek? Yeki. It's Yeki. Yeti. It's like the abominable snowman, but with a K. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. So it's Dr. Tiffany Yeki Brooks. Mm-hmm. It's kind of almost sounds yucky. Do you ever get that? I did when I was younger, but like for the most part now you say Yeti and then people just kind of go that way. Yes. Route. Yes. Oh, I can totally see that being a problem in grade school. Yes. Anyways. Dr. Tiffany Yecky Brooks is the author of numerous books, including multiple New York Times bestsellers. She's also been a professor of literature and writing at Abilene Christian University, McMurray University, and the University of South Carolina, Beaufort. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you. Thank you. the reason I, I wanted to have Tiffany on here is because she has written a brand new book that was just released this year, which I read and love. I'm going to show for people who are watching the video, I'm going to show what it looks like. Also, you can see the cover on the back of <laughs> Tiffany's Zoom there. Um, Gaslighted by God. If this is an amazing book. I have so many pages, the corners turned over and so many highlights in this book. And so I'm super excited to um, interview you about this book and introduce this book to my listeners. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about this book and why you wrote it? Yeah, absolutely. No, so for years, you know, when I was teaching writing, I'd often have students say, or, you know, and even literature, like, you know, why isn't there a book about X? And I'd say, well, maybe because you haven't written it yet. You know, and that was kind of my go-to answer. Um, And I didn't really think anything of it until I started going through probably about maybe about 12 years ago now, the beginnings of a lot of questioning about this deep spiritual anxiety I'd had and and always had and never really knew what to do with. And I didn't have the vocabulary yet. You know, terms like deconstruction weren't really being thrown around just then. Yeah. And everything I looked looked for with Christian resources all boiled down to, well, you just need to pray more, have a little more faith in Jesus. Um, and it didn't matter how much I was fasting and praying and, you know, doing all the prescribed things, um, situations weren't improving in my life. My faith was not, um, feeling reassured. I was feeling so disillusioned by the faith I had been taught, um, and by inconsistencies I was seeing and toxicity I was seeing, but I was afraid to, to say anything because you do that. And then you are, you're that person. Yeah. You know, you're the one questioning, you're the one pushing back. You're the one who is not following the, the, the nice Christian girl model, the prescribed way of following. And it's like, well, if you just did what the Bible says, this would all clear up for you. And I remember one time, um, driving, uh, up Highway 39 in Meridian, Mississippi, where we were living at the time. And there was this, this church across the street from the Winn-Dixie that had a marquee that said, um, if God feels distant, who do you think moved? And I just started screaming in my car at a church marquee. So I'm going to go ahead and admit that this was not 
maybe one of my finer moments. Like I'm at the stoplight and these people are just looking at the crazy lady screaming in the car. But it just felt like the most like almost mean spirited, willfully ignorant statement. Yeah. I was like, how dare you boil down the like relationships with the God of the universe to a zinger? And I felt like that's what so much of, of Christianity had become yeah. with these easy pat answers. And so finally, um, in February of 2019, um, I was talking with someone and I uh, actually my therapist and I blurted out the line. I feel like I've been gaslighted by God. And we're there's this long pause. It was right at the end of the session. There's this long pause. And then she's like pick this up next week. You know what I said? I think that's the name of a book. And she said, I think you're right. And that, that was the moment that this book was born. And I realized that I needed to take that advice that I had been giving to my students for so long of saying, maybe the book doesn't exist because you haven't written it yet. And I realized I needed to take that to heart and I needed to maybe write the book that people who were struggling with with legalism and, and the, the impact of the spiritual abuse and toxicity in their faith um, but weren't ready to let go of their faith or walk away from the church altogether. Maybe maybe I needed to put that story into words and maybe I was the only one, but I imagine there were other people like that. And it's been just incredible the response I've gotten so far of people saying, this is, this is everything I've been thinking or talking about or praying about or struggling with. And I thought I was the only one who felt that way. Yes. Um, so it's been really wonderful to see people respond and say, you know, to know that if this is the way you're feeling, you're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. That title, I love the title. It's a genius title because it gets people very curious. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed, so I was sharing some quotes when I was in the middle of reading it. I shared some quotes on social media and I would say, you know, this is from the book Gaslighted by God. And I, a couple of people were like, well, is this book saying that God gaslights us? Right. And so, but it's, it's, it's not Right. It's correct. It's the opposite. Like, mm -hmm. how would you just, what would you say to someone who's asking that about the title of your book? The problem isn't God. It's the narrative that we have constructed around God that utilizes language of abuse or manipulation. Yeah. And so much of, I think, especially like in Protestantism, we've, we've relied on so much language of, of for such a worm as I, and you'll never be enough, enough on your own. You're nothing without God. Like this is all language that if someone we were in a relationship said this to, you know, we'd say, get out of that relationship. That's problematic. Yeah. Um, and so we've, we've rooted so much theology in language of abuse that it's, it's terrifying to think what that's doing to people's sense of self, to their relationship with God, to the way they relate to people, to what they think their, their worth is, to what they think their responsibility is in terms of self-care and self-protection. Um, and so I wanted to, like I said, you know, it was a line I blurted out and thought, but that really kind of encapsulates where I was because I could not stomach the thought of picking up one more book that said, you know, basically, if you just squeeze a little more Jesus on the situation, it's going to get better. Right. You know, and that's not right. That's right. not, there are some situations that are, that's just not the case. And so that's, I really wanted to write a book that somebody who was so soul tired and spiritually burned out would be willing to pick up because yes. it wasn't promising BFF Jesus, who, if you just pray a little more is going to fix everything. Yes. The thing that I love about this book is that the whole point of it is that you're separating God from the gaslighting. Yes, exactly. It, yes. Exactly. And that's so, I mean, if we really do love and respect God, 
honestly, it's the way that people present him. It's blasphemous that we're applying our own abusive behaviors and thoughts and thinking onto the creator of the universe. It's blasphemous. And it ruins people's lives, ruins their lives and destroys their faith. So by this book, separating that God from that gaslighting is, is so important. Okay. So you open your book with a story about a space chimp. So tell us about that. Yeah. So um, in 1961, um, there was this, the NASA was employing um, space chimps or, you know, these, these primates to study the effects of zero gravity on mental cognition in, in space and zero gravity. And so they had this series of chimps that they had trained to carry out certain exercises so that they could, you know, as, as they're kind of moving that space program forward to really understand how the primate brain operates. It's blood reaching the brain in zero gravity. You know, how is this going to be impacted? So there was this one chimp named Enos who was part of the Mercury Atlas space program. And um, he was launched into space on November 29th of 1961. And he had been trained for um, 1,250 hours in something called avoidance conditioning exercises, which is where there would be a series of job was to pull a lever for the one that did not match. Um, and so then he would do this a series of times and they would see that as he was in zero gravity to see how that, you know, how he was able to carry that out if, if the results were consistent with what they had observed on earth. Um, so Enos goes up into space and the avoidance conditioning exercise comes up and he pulls the lever as he was trained to do for the item that's out of, out of place in the sequence. Um, and it was supposed to be that if he got it right, it would move to the next one. But if he got it wrong, he would get a shock to his foot. Something had been miswired. There was a glitch in the system. And even though Enos pulled the correct lever, he still got a shock. And in fact, he got 33 consecutive shocks in a row, but he continued pulling the correct lever. Then that exercise ended, they went on to a few other ones and then it cycled back around and he came to the avoidance uh, conditioning exercise again. And this time he received 41 consecutive shocks, but he still continued pulling that correct lever despite that. So he was supposed to go through three complete cycles, but because of the glitch, NASA actually brought him down early. But because of that, he landed um, miles off target. And so he's in this cramped, overheated pod bobbing around in the Caribbean Sea. And it took the USS Storms three and a half hours to locate him and find him. And by the time they did, um, the NASA report says that he had ripped off the belly panel and actually pulled out the catheter still inflated. And that he had basically reverted from being this, this tremendously highly trained lab animal almost back to this wild creature screeching at his rescuers. And the first time I read that story, probably a decade ago, I burst into tears because it was the closest thing I had ever read to how my faith experience felt. Yeah. That I was trying to do the right thing over and over and over again. And Every time I did, I received the shock, but I persisted because that's what I had been trained to do. That's what I was told was my mission. Yes. Um, and that at some point you revert back to the wild animal. You, you, you say there, you know, there's a point where you've got to say, I did everything that was asked of me. And this wasn't what I was promised. This wasn't what the deal was. This wasn't what this was supposed to be. And I just remember reading that and feeling 
just the, the deep, tremendous, overwhelming empathy with the space chimp and, and feeling like that's it. That's the feeling that I've been trying to capture about what is this disconnect between what I've been taught about God and what my experience has been. Yeah. That is a profound analogy. It really is. I I know I can relate as well. I think um, a lot of us can, unfortunately. Yeah. So in the in the book, Gaslighted by God, you talk about how Christians who are facing this deconstruction of their faith are similar are also similar to shell-shocked soldiers yeah. in World War One. So talk tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the areas that I teach with literature is um, literature between the wars, um, but really kind of starting a World War One. And it's fascinating because you had this, it was it's considered the first modern war. You have machine guns, you have airplanes being used, you've got tanks, you've got this this modern mechanized warfare going on. But you also have this generation of young men who shipped off to war. Um, there's this quote that said, we went to war with Homer in our pockets, that they had grown up even in the like little rural country schools of England with um, stories of the classics of Greece and Rome and the, you know the, the, this golden past. Um, and you know this is, again, you know, you've got like the golden age of the British empire and that this is, every generation has their war and this is your shining chance to go honor God and country. And these young men went to the trenches and it was like nothing they had ever seen or experienced because it was a completely different war than anyone had ever known before. Mm -hmm. And so many of them came back um, with what was then called shell shock, but we now recognize as, as PTSD. Um, but some of them were labeled social deviants. Um, some of them uh, were, I mean, there were a number of men executed for cowardice. Um, because the the PTSD was so dramatic that they couldn't force themselves out of that trench. Um, it, it, it was it was heartbreaking how they were treated. And so we understand then you know, that whole lost generation that you hear from the 1920s, so many people left to go find something else because when they came back, nobody wanted to hear their stories of what trench warfare had actually been like, because it didn't match the golden narrative that had been sold, that they had sold right. to the public. And so they felt so alienated and 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 shell-shocked because the what they had been taught didn't match with the experience and, yes. and no one wanted to hear about it. And that to me was again this this important metaphor for I think where so many of us are in the church that we were sent to war with I kissed dating goodbye or the prayer of Jabez or some of these things, you know, in our pockets that this was the theology that we were brought up on, especially, you know, Gen X women, um, millennial women, you know, I think a lot of us kind of had some of this purity culture and lady in waiting and so many of these books that we were told, you know, you have to read this. This is this is what Christian womanhood is about. Mm -hmm. And you go out in the world and it's not like that. Right. And you are woefully unprepared for the reality of what to do when when your Christian walk isn't what you were promised it would be if you ticked all the right boxes and you come back to your church and you share about that and you are labeled a backslider or, you know, some godless liberal or, you know, this this heathen who just wants to throw out the rules because really, you know, oh, well, you just want to go do what you want and not have any consequences for sin. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're basically put in sometimes put in front of the firing squad for cowardice um for trying to tell people this what you prepared us for is not 
the reality out there. Right. And it doesn't match the golden narrative that they've been pitching. Right. Um, and that, again, it was that important. That was a really significant metaphor for me in understanding why, um, you know, again, why, why that lost generation kind of went out and did their thing and how many of so many of us, I think, are like that lost generation and that we are searching and we want to put something back together with faith. But it's not going to be that. It's not it's not going to be the old promises that we were sold um, that didn't hold up um, yeah. in the reality of of the trench warfare of yeah. life. Yeah. And even taking that a step further, a lot of the, my listeners are in emotionally abusive and spiritually abusive marriages. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and I know in my experience, even trying to go to the church and tell people about what was going on, that was my personal, like behind the scenes warfare in my home. Yeah. They didn't believe me right. that cause that didn't fit their narrative. There must be something wrong with me if that's what I'm experiencing. Exactly. And, and then for women who end up getting divorced from out of these relationships to get into a safe place. I mean, I was excommunicated. So a lot of other women get excommunicated from their churches. So that, yeah. that analogy um, is perfect. It perfectly describes that as well. And so many of the women who are going through this in their marriages, they are then extrapolating that out into their faith. They're seeing how mm -hmm. their faith actually set them up to yeah. be in an abusive relationship and to stay for so many years, which goes back to the whole monkey idea too. Absolutely. I'm just going to stay. I know this will work. If I just keep trying harder, it'll eventually work. Right. Cause that's right. what I've been trained to believe. Mm -hmm. So, um, in addition to writing about spiritual abuse and religious trauma in gaslighted by God, you also write about spiritual anxiety. So tell us what that is and how does that impact the development of a person's faith? So spiritual anxiety is really just the unhealthy obsession with um, or fear of um, damnation, of displeasing God, of not feeling worthy of God. It can manifest in a number of different ways. Um, and what I think it's important to note is that that doesn't develop in a vacuum. That is not something you don't wake up one morning and just suddenly have this crushing fear of hell. Like that has to come from somewhere. Yeah. And we, people are being conditioned into having this, this, this crushing fear of not being worthy of God. I mean, when, when you're told constantly, you can't trust your feelings because that's the flesh trying to take control. You throw out your intuition. Intuition is a God-giving gift. Yes. I mean, especially with women, we talk about that female intuition. But we, when you're told not to trust yourself because that's the flesh taking control, then you throw out this, this safeguard that God has provided us for protecting ourselves and you no yes. longer trust yourself. And then it creates a state of dependence on, well, if I can't trust myself, I must, I, I have to trust what these higher ups are telling me, what these people in power are telling me. And so often, far too often, um, they're going to tell you what keeps them in power, what reinforces a patriarchal narrative, um, what, what reinforces the view that is comfortable for them. Because as you said, and you know, again, and we talked about this in the book too, that idea of well, if your experience doesn't line up with a Christian life, then something is wrong with you. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's classic gaslighting. That's yep. exactly what it is. And so you're being told submit more, 
if if you have a problem in your marriage, it's because you aren't submitting more, because you are not offering sex enough, because you are not, you know, whatever that is, it's your fault. And 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 that's shameful. And it's heartbreaking because it feeds into this this spiritual anxiety, the sense of my personal relationships almost directly reflect my relationship with God. And so if I get this, if I have a divorce, if I walk away from this abusive situation, that's the same as me walking away from God. Like we've set this up as an equivalency because we talk about the church as the bride of Christ. And so we've drawn all these false equivalencies. Those are metaphors. They are not meant to be taken literally. Right. And it's heartbreaking to see the, the damage that's done. Um, in addition to that, the more somebody, it's something that, um, how can I describe it? The more you sort of buy into those narratives, the more you are praised. And so then as you are praised for this behavior, it reinforces it. And it's sort of that turn of the screw that then you're saying, well, if I'm getting praised, I must be doing the right thing, which makes you screw into this anxiety deeper and deeper and harder until suddenly you, you have no sense of what's real, what you can trust, um, if you can trust yourself, is that the Holy Spirit or is that, you know, a, the devil whispering in my ear? I mean, that's heartbreaking. Right. And I just, I think too many, too many people, and especially women find themselves in the situation Now, the Catholic church actually has a term for this called scrupulosity. And they actually have some priests who are specifically trained in working with people with scrupulosity. Um, a lot of times that can take the form of obsessive compulsive disorder, but it doesn't have to. There's actually a wonderful book by a priest named Thomas Santa called understanding scrupulosity and he's literally talking so if a uh, blanket recommendation it's phenomenal um if you're somebody who, who struggles with these issues please check that book out understanding scrupulosity by, by thomas santa um and he literally directly talks about this issue in a spiritual context um and it was i mean the book is probably 15 years old but it was the first time i had ever seen this issue addressed head on um, and it's not something we're talking about enough because we love to dismiss it and say, oh, well, if you're spiritually anxious, it's because, you know, we respond in one of two ways. Either we say, oh, well, your fears are irrational because God has unshakable mercy. So that then denies lived experience and makes the person feel worse for feeling it. Or we chastise them for talking about the sin of doubt. And then they feel worse because they feel I fail God because I doubt it. So it's a no win situation. It is. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, and that, yeah. Talk about making you go crazy. Yes. Yes. Okay. There are right now, I feel like there, there are a lot of books being released on the topic of deconstruction, which makes me really happy. Absolutely. I feel like, I yeah. feel like it's, I see it on social media all the time now. I, so people are addressing this. It's amazing. Um, but a lot of them are looking at it through a political lens. Mm -hmm. which, yeah, you know, there's a part of me that kind of likes that. And then, mm -hmm. but tell us why your book actually tries to avoid that, to avoid political discussions. Yeah. I mean, we do talk about certain things, you know, we touch on nationalism and some of these other issues, but really I wanted to write a book that you could read and maybe highlight and then give to someone and say, I need you to read this and understand where I'm coming from. This is what I've been experiencing. And so many times especially in the United States, we 
we have melded politics and religion so deeply that if you attack one, the person's convinced you're attacking the other. Yeah. You know, if you try to deconstruct one, they're like, well, you're just saying this because you don't like the way I vote. And it's like, no, I'm saying this because I don't like the way you treat me or I don't like the way you act or I think you need to understand this. Um, and so I really tried to avoid politics so that you could give this book to your grandma or to your dad or to your whoever it is. And it doesn't matter which way they vote, what their party affiliation is, because these are truths that are separate from the American political scene. Now, that certainly some of these concepts have grown up because of um, certain political ideologies that have taken root and really, you know, taken hold and, and permeated our culture. But the book itself, I wanted to be politically neutral yeah. so that that would not be a stumbling block for somebody who needs to hear this and understand. One of one of the most um, touching texts I've gotten, I think, since the book came out was from a dear friend of mine, but who was very um, theologically more conservative than I am. And she sent a message and said, I need to apologize. And I was like, you know, you're a lovely person. Okay. You know what for? She said, no, reading your book, I realized I do these things and I had no idea how harmful they were and mm -hmm. how tone, you know, tone deaf they were and how hurtful I was being. I had the best of intentions, but I realize now how prideful the response was. And I am so sorry. And I, I want to change that. I mean, I, and I was, I was blown away by that because I was, she was someone I, I was afraid was going to read the book and feel very offended and put me on her prayer list. And you know, like a very sweet, kind, wonderful woman. Um, but for her to read that and, and send me this beautifully humble text that said, this opened my eyes to behaviors that I need to change about myself um, was one of the most, I don't it was so hope filled for me yeah. that maybe this isn't just a book for the people who have been on the receiving end of this, yeah. but that it's going to reach people who have been perpetrating some of these ideas yes. and will maybe make them recognize the, sometimes the intended consequences, but very often the unintended consequences yeah. Of, yeah. of their actions. I and I didn't that. want politics to get in the way of that. Yeah. I love that. So a lot of Christians who are in the process of deconstructing their faith are taking a look at how their beliefs <clears throat> were rooted in legalism. So tell us what legalism is and mm -hmm. why and how you address that in your book. So legalism, it's, it's ultimately, it's a form of control. Um, it's an attempt to control the behavior of others by uh, restricting their choices or causing them to live in fear of making a wrong move. It's control of yourself. Sometimes you have like sort of this involuntary internalized legalism, and that goes along with spiritual anxiety a lot. But it's also an attempt to control God because you are trying to put God in a position of acknowledging the extra effort and once I think once you put it in those terms that you realize that legalism is creating an obligation for God to have to reward you in a certain way, it it makes legalism seem much more problematic for somebody who mm -hmm. maybe didn't see it as a huge problem before. Mm -hmm. Now, and something I talk about is that, you know, it's legalism is expanding the definitions of things and adding on to it. 
And Jesus actually expanded the definition of, of several sins. Um, but when he did so, it was always to protect the other person rather than to elevate the individual. So, you know, when he said just being angry with someone is akin to murder, he wasn't doing that to add to the the, the burden of, um, oh gosh, I, I felt angry and now I might as well have, you know, just gone out and killed a bunch. No, the point was that he was trying to stop people from carrying grudges that might lead to violence, that might lead them to harm someone else. He sought to honor women by acknowledging that men were responsible for their own lustful thoughts by saying, you know, um, like if you have a lustful thought, that's akin to adultery. Like, again, he's, he's putting the burden on someone else. He, he's putting the burden on the man. He's protecting the woman. He did it again with his limitation of divorce. It wasn't trying to hem people in. There's um, a woman's story that we share in the book named Beth. Um, or that's the name we use in the book that I think many of your readers may see parallels to um, where she felt trapped by all of these legalistic definitions of divorce. But Jesus's point wasn't to keep women trapped in unsafe situations, but to to restrict men from divorcing them for just any reason. And then in this highly patriarchal society, leaving them without protection or shelter or you know a, a means of, of living. Um, and so every time Jesus is Jesus expanded a definition, he did it to protect the vulnerable um, and not to add burden to to the vulnerable. And yeah. we have spun we flipped that around so much. And so there's actually one of my favorite, I think the legalism chapter is actually one of my favorite chapters in the book um, because I look at the story. It's this weird, obscure story in Genesis or in um in the Old Testament about. Saul making this declaration about if any of my warriors eat anything uh, by before the end of the day, then, you know, it's it's everybody's under a curse anyway. And then his son, Jonathan, finds some honey and eats it and encourages the warriors to eat it. And it says that they do and they are revived in spirit. And then Saul freaks out and says, I'm going to kill whoever. And it becomes this whole. But I break that story down in terms of looking at it as an illustration of legalism of Saul making this rash vow, but it puts the burden on someone else. It puts the burden on his men. And he says, I'm going to please God by, by making this vow. But the people who suffer are the people who served under him who are now going hungry. And it's very interesting because in there, in that story, there's a note that says this was the first altar Saul erected to God. And I think that's interesting too, because it's like Saul was certainly not sinless. And yet after the men break his vow and eat that honey, Saul erects an altar on their behalf. He's he's yeah. he's willing to say y'all need to repent and yeah. not look at himself. So it's we go through I go through that story in that chapter and really break it down as a great illustration of how legalism really works in the church um and passing that burden on to other people. Yeah. Um and so that's yeah, I, I just I would like to remind readers that when you find yourself encountered with legalism, remember that it's tr it's an effort to control God and that when Jesus expanded definitions, he was always doing it to tell his followers that that weight of forgiveness and self-control and temperance and fidelity and all of that, that burden should be passed on to, or should be held by the individual and not passing that on to other people like so yes. many religious leaders yes. have done now. Right. It's the whole idea of law versus love. Jesus yeah. came to fulfill the law by showing how love yeah. 
is the fulfillment of the law. So we always filter everything through the filter of love. If, if a, if a law is actually destroying people, that's not love. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then there's another chapter in the book where we talk about this, this Hebrew concept called pekoach nefesh, which is the idea of saving a life. And the idea is that it's a concept in Judaism um, that if um, if a law needs to be broken, that uh, it should be done so in order to save a life, and that the person who is considered the more um, spiritually mature or pious is supposed to have the honor of being the person to break that that law. So, for wow. example, um, on a high holy day for fasting, um, you need to continue to take medicine. Uh, and if that medicine needs means that you need to have food with it, then you take that with a reasonable amount of food. And that is not considered breaking the law. If somebody has a heart attack on the Sabbath, you can call 911, even though normally making a phone call would be forgiven or forbidden on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see the idea of Pekulik Nefesh played out in the New Testament, even, you know, with Jesus yeah. saying, isn't it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And if your son or an ox fell into a pit, wouldn't you pull them out on the Sabbath? So that we see that that idea of Pekulik Nefesh, of saving a life, is present in the New Testament. This is not unbiblical. Right. Um, and I talk in that chapter that it's fascinating when you look in Genesis, when Sarah dies, it says Abraham traveled to her, which means that at some point, Abraham and Sarah separated. Sarah left Abraham because he has to travel to go and bury her. And the idea with Pekoic Nefesh is, you know, you do whatever action is necessary to save a life. And to me, it's really interesting because that story of Sarah's death comes immediately on the heels of the story of the almost sacrifice of Isaac. And mm-hmm. so it's speculation, but you think you, you see, here's a woman who was pulled up from her homeland. Um, her husband basically tried to sell her to, or, you know, kind of under false pretenses, gave her to other men twice, yeah. then goes and tries to sacrifice, you know, has a child with another woman goes to basically kill their son. At some point she left. Yeah. At some point there was a separation between the two. And again, it's speculation, but it's in the text. You've got to ask why. And you see elsewhere in Genesis that when Lot and Abraham are disagreeing and there are too many sheep in the land and they're not getting along, the shepherds are fighting, they split and that's God sanctioned. And that sometimes that separation is necessary to save a life. Yeah. And I think it is a beautiful but often overlooked um, biblical example of taking the necessary steps to remove yourself from a harmful situation, to remove yourself from a situation that is not life-giving. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Okay. So besides some of your own personal stories, your book has about two dozen interviews with other people who share their experiences. So tell us a little bit about these people and their stories and how you decided whose stories to include. Yeah. I mean, I I interviewed probably close to 30 people and unfortunately I wasn't able to include all of the stories, um, but I was so grateful for people who shared them um, because it takes a lot of courage to share your story um, and to say, you know, to be willing to, to put into words that feeling of my Christian walk, my Christian life is not what I was told it would be. Like, this is something different. And this is, this is why I have an issue with it. 
Um, and what was fascinating was while I did these interviews, you know, they started kind of within my own circle of people I knew. And then those people would say, I have a friend you need to talk to because this person went through this. And then I would talk to that person. They'd say, oh, absolutely. I have this other person you need to talk to. And then, um, you know, a couple of the stories come from online forums where I'd reach out to the person afterward and say, do you mind if I share this? Because what you are saying, I think, really encapsulates where a lot of people are. And something that interested me so much was the wide range of ages. Um, I had, you know, people from the baby boomer generation. I had, you know, young, early 20-somethings, maybe late late millennial, early Gen Z. Like, the, the, it really ran the spectrum of age, socioeconomic group, racial and cultural backgrounds. I mean, it was really wildly diverse in a way that was both encouraging you know, that lots of people are telling, but also heartbreaking to see just how, how extensive this issue really is. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that uh, I experienced afterwards, my church invited me to actually come and speak to the senior citizen Sunday school class um, about the book earlier this spring. And I was kind of nervous because I didn't know, you know, sort of how this older generation would, would respond to maybe some of these less traditional ideas. And I finished and this woman raised her hand and she said, so this was in January that we did this. She said, I'm going to be 92 next month. And I have waited my entire life for a book like this. Oh, that is heartbreaking. Right. I mean, it just, I couldn't. Oh my gosh. I, I couldn't believe that. And she said it with such just a sense of like, I have waited my whole life to hear someone say these things because I could never say them out loud. Mm. I've thought them, I've felt them. And I couldn't express them. And so I think that I was so grateful to the people who were willing to share their stories and so amazed by how universal the experiences were. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been awesome. I I hope everyone goes and gets this book. I'm sure (laughs) I can't imagine that everyone's not going to go get this book. It isn't a, it's a fabulous book. Um, you you. can get on Amazon. We'll include the links to the book, um, in the show notes. Is there anything else that you want to share before we close that you can think of? Actually. Um, so we've just launched a promotion, um, through the end of the year that if any book club or small group or Sunday school class, as if you purchase a minimum of six copies of the book, I will actually do a free Zoom video call um, with your group to discuss it and do a Q&A. So wow. um, you can reach out through my website, which is tiffanyyeckybrooks.com. Okay. Um, or Facebook, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Tiffany Yecky Brooks or Tiffany Brooks PhD. I'm on Facebook. Um, if you can reach out through there and then we can coordinate that. But you know, th- again, through the end of the year, just six copies or more, I'll, you know, I'll come and do, do a, a zoom chat with your group, do a Q and a, we can have a discussion. Um, I just want to make sure that, um, that the people who, who need to hear this message are getting it. And I think it helps so much to have community as you go through it. There are discussion questions in the back of the book for each chapter so that you can do guided discussions. Um, but it helps to have community sometimes when you're going through something like this. And so that's why I really want to encru- encourage book groups to do it so that you can be talking with other people who are experiencing these same things and you're not feeling isolated. You're not feeling like you've lost your faith tribe by, you know, by speaking some of these thoughts and feelings out loud. 
Right. Well, I already know right now I have a group called, uh, it's called flying higher. It's for divorced Christian women. And we were just having a panel discussion a, a couple weeks ago and talking about what we want to do for 2023. And a lot of us decided that we're, we would like to go through a book each month. And, um, and so we're totally doing one of the, one of those months next year, 2023, right. we'll do this book and we'd love to have you come on and do a discussion with us. That would be I so would be awesome. very happy to, yes. Just let me know. Okay. Well, for those of you who are listening, thank you so much for joining us today with this interview with Dr. Tiffany Yecky Brooks. And, um, if you enjoyed this podcast episode, be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. That's what helps Apple podcasts will show our podcast to other people if they see that people are liking it. So that's how we can spread the word. And um, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, fly free.